I am told that uh, professional sports teams, when they prepare for competitions, um, they do a number of things uh, to prepare for the games. One of the things I am told that they do is that they watch recordings of how opponent teams have played in the past so that they can pick up on the strategy of the opponent. Uh, by understanding the strategy of the opponent team, uh, the players can be aware and have a better chance of opposing the attacks of the, of the other team and also of developing a strategy to win the game. Well, in chapters 13, 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation, we get a picture of how the opposing team that fights against God, how they work, what they do, how they go about it, so that we might be instructed and understand their strategy, so that we might not be caught by surprise, so that we might be aware of their strategy and prepare to resist God's enemies. This morning, the passage we are looking at comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 18, and the theme of this morning's message is a call for endurance and faith. If you do not have a Bible with you, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 1035. Uh, read along and then follow along as this sermon will seek to expound this passage for our uh, edification and our instruction. Here is the word of the Lord, Revelation 13, 1 through 18. Now this morning's sermon will only focus on the first 10 verses, but in order to get the full picture, we're going to read the whole chapter. This is God's word. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horn and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on their right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we approach what you revealed to us in your word about the strategy of the devil and of his scheme to come and sway the earth away from worshiping you and to worship itself. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to see the strategy of the dragon. Help us to see the strategy of the beast. Help us to be aware. Help us to be cautious. Help us to endure and have faith. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this chapter has one primary aim for us, and the aim is to give us a call to endurance and faith. We see this call explicitly made in verse 10 in this passage. By the way, for those of you who are visiting with us, just keep the Bibles open. I'll I'll refer often to it. I'll even mention verses uh, where you find the points I'm making. In verse 10, for instance, this is the the primary aim of this chapter. Um, it's, It's given explicitly, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, why would Why would this book, why would the Revelation give us this call? Because the work of the dragon on earth continues on despite his defeat in heaven. In the previous chapter, chapter 12, last week we considered how the dragon, uh, which is a symbol for Satan, for the devil, how he failed to devour the Messiah, how he was defeated in heaven and was cast out of it, Yet, despite the devil's defeat in heaven, chapter 12 closed with telling us that the dragon continues to pursue the rest of the offspring of the woman. And and that woman is is a symbolic picture of the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The offspring of the woman are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All those who hold to the commandments of God, keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus are the offspring of the woman. And against them, the devil, the dragon, continues to pursue and make war against them. Chapter 13 
we see that this defeated dragon, since he is defeated, is assisted by two beasts who carry out the dragon's plan on the earth. The work of these two beasts make the life of the saints on earth to be difficult and with many temptations and many perils. So this text calls, calls God's people to endure against the way and the means by which the dragon uses the two beasts to inflict war upon God's people. The dragon's descendant on earth, okay, the, the dragon's descent on the earth and the work of the two beasts is not something that will happen only in the future. It's something that has already started with the first coming of Christ and will go on until the second coming of Christ. So this passage is not speaking just about the distant future. It is speaking about realities that have started happening in the very first century and continue on in our day as well. And it, they will be accelerated and intensified as we get closer to the second coming of Christ. But we must read this passage for us today. And not just assume that this passage is just for some distant future. Now, this passage is divided in two big scenes, two big sections. Verses 1 through 10 tell us about the first beast. Verses 11 through 18 tell us about the second beast, which is also called later in the book of Revelation, the false prophet. Today, we will focus our attention only on the first beast. And Lord willing, in two weeks, uh, we will consider the second beast. I say two weeks because next week, Lord willing, we'll have a guest preacher, Pastor Greg Vancourt. will be preaching God's word here. So we'll pick up the story of the two beasts in two weeks from today. As we look at the first beast, there's seven characteristics about this beast, about the way it works, about what it does, about what it is. And these characteristics help us to be aware of its ploys. I pray that as we hear about these seven characteristics, descriptions of, uh, about the beast, that we will actually be encouraged to know how to persevere and have faith. Now here's, if you'd like to take notes, here's the first characteristic. These points, by the way, will be fairly short. We're going to go pretty quickly through them. The first characteristic is the beast has a history in the biblical story. The beast has a history in the biblical story. Notice how this beast is introduced in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. The imagery of a beast coming out of a sea is not new. It is very similar to the vision of the four beasts that Daniel saw in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw, in chapter 7 of Daniel, Daniel saw four beasts coming out of the sea. And in Daniel, the first beast looked like a lion. The second beast looked like a bear. The third beast looked like a leopard, and it had four heads. And the fourth beast has no comparison, but it had ten horns. Now, why do I bring this up? The four beasts of Daniel 7 are all combined into the beast of Revelation 13. It's a beast with ten horns, seven heads, and it looks like a leopard, like a bear, and like a lion. 
You might say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the way we're going to understand the beast in Revelation 13 is going to take some cues from the way it was interpreted in in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, those were symbols of worldly empires, the first one representing King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. This means that behind Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon, the dragon and his beast was already at work in incipient stages. This also means that the beast that we now read in Revelation 13 is described with elements that are already present in Old Testament times, and they continue throughout the history of the Bible. So when we read about this beast in Revelation 13, uh, first of all, we should, we should not be scared as if it's something totally off the charts. It showed up in the biblical story before. Only this time, the beast of Daniel all combined together to make an even more powerful and, and, and influential beast. This beast is, is a type of the Antichrist. It is the way Revelation speaks of the Antichrist. Now, we should not think about the beast as something that will happen only at the second coming of Christ. The figure of this beast has already been at work among us, starting with the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's unfolding in the biblical story. And we are part of that story already. So the first beast, this beast has a history in the biblical story. That's the first point. The second point we see is that the beast acts on behalf of the dragon. The beast acts on behalf of the dragon. We see that in several ways. The connection between the beast and the dragon is so, so tight in in these verses. First of all, it's coming out of the, the sea. This beast is coming out of the sea. The dragon was considered a sea monster in the Old Testament. The sea was considered the realm of the dragon. So the beast's origin coming from the, realm, from, from the sea is a way of saying the beast is coming from the realm of the dragon and it is coming in ways that simulate the dragon and to act on behalf of the dragon. The beast shares the dragon's descriptions. Uh, the the picture of ten horns, seven heads with ten diadems. This is how the dragon was described also in chapter 12. Just speak with me in chapter 12, verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads with seven diadems. The beast shares the dragon's descriptions. But it's not just sharing the dragon's origin and descriptions. The beast actually receives the dragon's authority Power and reign. Look with me to to the second part of verse 2. And to it, to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, we've seen in chapter 12 that the dragon had, had, had a great authority and great power. But now we also hear that he had a throne. And now he is giving the throne and the power and the authority to the beast so that the beast occupies and shares in the dragon's power, authority, and reign. In other words, it is a beast that advances upon the earth, the reign and the power and the authority of the dragon. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Here's a big deal about it. When the dragon shares all his authority, reign, and power with the beast... The dragon 
is seeking to imitate the relationship between God and Christ. Because in the book of Revelation, it is God who shares his authority, his power, and his throne with Christ so that Christ is the one who brings upon the earth the kingdom of God. And the dragon's strategy is to mimic what God is doing, to empower the beast, to work through the beast, to bring on earth the reign, the power, and the authority of the dragon manifested through the beast. And by the way, this mimicking doesn't stop just between the dragon and the first beast. It'll continue with the, third, with the second beast, which is the third player in this, in this picture. The third player also seeks to mimic God, but in ways in which the Holy Spirit works towards Christ. In other words, here we see a, a mimicking of the evil trinity. The dragon and the two beasts are acting in a trinitarian way to bring about their evil plans upon the earth. They seek to divert the worship of the earth away from God and turn it towards themselves. So the second point is that the beast acts on behalf of the dragon, sharing in his power, throne, and authority. Here's a third point we learn about the beast. The beast appears invincible and beyond comparison. The beast appears invincible and beyond comparison. In verse 3, we read that one of the heads of the beast uh, received a deadly plague or a deadly wound. It was wounded to death. That's another way of saying it. And yet, its deadly wound was healed. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Despite the fatal wound, the beast goes on living. Now, in doing this, the beast is mimicking Christ in his death and resurrection. The beast appears invincible despite receiving a mortal blow. And when the people of the earth see all that has happened to the beast, they respond with worship, verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon. Why? Because the dragon had given authority to the beast. And then they worshiped the beast. Why? Because they said, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? In other words, the people of the earth stand in amazement of the beast. The people of the earth find the beast invincible and beyond comparison. Now, when we hear the word beast, we assume that it would be a scary creature. But this beast here looks powerful and amazing. The beast does not look terrifying. It looks impressive. It looks luring. It looks attractive for worship. Friends, I, I wonder if you pick up on, on the way the earth responds in worship to seeing the amazement of the beast and how this actually teaches us something about worship. We are inclined to worship that which amazes us that which we think is invincible, that which we find ultimately powerful and in control. Now, if we think that money is ultimately powerful and that it's a means to give us control over our lives, 
to live our lives the way we desire, then money is what we will worship. If having influence or recognition by others is, is what we find most powerful, then we will worship and give our lives to pursue influence and recognition by others. If we think that we ourselves are ultimately in control and powerful to do whatever we want, then we worship ourselves. As human beings, we are wired to worship that which we find most amazing and powerful. That's why if we want to increase in our worship of God, we need to grow in viewing the greatness of God. Friends, ask yourself, what is it that you consider to be beyond comparison or incredibly powerful? Whatever that is, be aware that your heart will be inclined to worship it. In this passage, the beast appears invincible and beyond comparison to the people of the earth. And the natural response of the people of the earth, when they see that, that incomparable majesty of the beast, is to worship the beast. The fourth point about the beast, the fourth point about the beast, is that the beast exalts itself above God. The beast exalts itself above, above God. We may be amazed at the beast's power, at the beast's ability to mimic God's work and plans, but it's only when it opens its mouth that we realize this beast is not trying to, um, to look like God for God's sake. It's trying to look like God because it wants to take God's place. It opposes God. It blasphemes God. It exalts itself above God. We see this in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Now, haughty and blasphemous words. These are words by which a beast pretends to be greater than it really is. Haughty words, the beast assumes that it can oppose God. It assumes that it is greater than God. Such haughty words end up being a blaspheming of God. Look at verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Now you might wonder, what does it mean to blaspheme God? What is blasphemy? What does it mean to blaspheme God? It means to speak words that denigrate or defame, or disrespect, or slander. In this case, God. The beast is doing all of this towards God. And the, by the way, this is not the first time when someone is using haughty words and blaspheming words against God. The Old Testament gives us a pattern. In the Old Testament, the king of Assyria spoke haughty words by which he blasphemed God. You remember in 2 Kings, the king Hezekiah refused to surrender to the attacks of the, of the king of Assyria. The king, uh, king Hezekiah led the people of Jerusalem to trust God and seek his refuge and not bow down to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the following message to Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem would not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Now, in other words, the king of Assyria is accusing God of deceiving his people with his promises. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you with his promises. 
And then the king of Assyria boasts. He says, none of the gods of the other nations were able to withstand me. Do you think that you and your God will be able to withstand me? What an accusation against God. And God's verdict on the, on the words of the king of Assyria were that he blasphemed God. The NASB describes God's response to the king of Assyria in the following way in 2 Kings 19.22. He says, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Haughty eyes, blaspheming words. The king of Assyria has done it. This was the way the king of Assyria is speaking against God's power and ability to rescue his people. What this tells us, friends, is the beast in Revelation 13 is doing nothing new. He is is speaking haughty words and blaspheming words. The same kind of words that the king of Assyria spoke in the Old Testament. The spirit of the beast has been present in the Old Testament as well. The story of the king of Assyria illustrates a pattern that follows uh, the, the scheme of the beast. The beast is speaking against God, pretending to be greater than God, having the audacity to think that it's, it can oppose God. But when we remember the pattern of how God dealt with haughty and blasphemous kings and words in the Old Testament, we get a hint that if the Old Testament king of Assyria was not able to escape, but God miraculously saved his people and killed the king of Assyria back in his own country, that God is able to handle anyone who speaks haughty words and blasphemous words towards God. The beast appears powerful and dazzling to the eyes of the world, but it shows its true colors when it speaks, when it blasphemes against God. Having power and authority, but opposing God is not a good idea. Characteristic number five about the beast The beast is allowed to conquer God's people. The beast is allowed to conquer God's people. Friends, this is is part of the passage that is hard to swallow. We're told in verse 7 that the beast is even allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. In other words, the beast was allowed to kill God's people. This verse seems such... Such a contrast to what we read earlier in chapter 12 about the people of God conquering the dragon. Remember chapter 12, verse 11, where we read that God's people have conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony? And you might wonder, how how did they conquer the dragon? But now the beast who has the authority of the dragon conquers the people of God. Well, the rest of Verse 11 in chapter 12 tells us, They conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In Revelation 13, 7, the beast is allowed to conquer God's people in the sense of causing them their death. Now, why is the beast doing this? Because in doing so, the beast shows the world that it has sovereign power. If it can show that it can kill God's people, it feeds into the impression that the beast is ultimately in control and in power. Yet there's a key insight in this verse. The authority to make war on the saints was an authority that was given 
to the beast. It was allowed to make war on them. It was allowed to conquer them. This is a passive tense. This is a passive um, verb, meaning the power of the beast to conquer the saints was not in the beast. It was allowed for the beast to do this. Friends, this is the key. This means that when God's people endure persecution or, or, or suffering because of Christ, even that is under God's control over the beast. The beast may seem more powerful when it conquers God's people, but that authority was not based on the beast. It was a, the beast was any, only able to do what God allowed it to do. So the beast is allowed to conquer God's people. Here's point six about the beast. The beast has worldwide authority, but a limited time. The beast has worldwide authority, but a limited time. Verse 7, we see the extent uh, of the beast's authority. Verse 7, an authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Friends, this description is used in Revelation as being the, the future intent, extent of the kingdom of God on earth. But here in this verse, every tribe, people, language, and nation are described under the authority of the beast. While the beast is described as having worldwide authority, its authority has a limited time. Earlier in verse 5, we read that the beast was allowed to exercise authority only for 42 months. The time of 42 months in the book of Revelation is a symbolic time. It's the same time, same equivalent of time, as 1,260 days, or as three and a half years, or as the phrase time, times, and half a time. All these refer to the same time frame. It's a time of the two witnesses. It's the same time as the woman who was protected by God in the wilderness. It's a time that started with the first coming of Christ and will end with the second coming of Christ. It's a time in which the beast is allowed to have authority on the earth. But this time is a limited time. It's a short time in comparison with eternity. This time has already started. For the past 2,000 years, we are living in a time when Satan has been reigning over the nations of the earth. Do you remember how the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness? He said the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of, of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. Friends, we live in a time when the devil has authority over all the kingdoms of the earth, but his authority is limited in time. The beast is acting on behalf of the dragon only to do what it is allowed to do. And while the earth sees the beast invincible, and dazzling with great authority and power, the people of God are told not to be impressed by the power and authority and extent uh, of, the, of the kingdom of the devil. Even when the beast is able to kill God's people, all that the beast does is doing because God allowed the beast to act this way for a limited time. While the people of God are warned not to be impressed or afraid by the beast, we are told that the people of the earth all worship the beast. And this brings us to the last point about the beast. 
the seventh point in this passage about the beast. The beast is worshipped by all, with one exception. The beast is worshipped by all, with one exception. Look at verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, this verse is key for the book of Revelation. It presents the entire population of the earth. The entire population of the earth as being worshipers of the beast with one exception. And the exception is not those who are atheists. The exception is not those who are agnostics. The exception is not those who are irreligious. The exception is only those who belong to God do not worship the beast. Everyone else does, whether they recognize it or not. Everyone does. Next week, by, or in two weeks, by God's will, when we look at the second half of the book of, of, of chapter 13, we will see how the false prophet induces the entire earth to worship the beast. But here we see that there's only two categories of worshipers. Those who worship the beast or those who belong to God. Now those who belong to God have their names written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, this is the doctrine of election. In other words, God's elect, those whom God has elected, and written their names in the book before the foundation of the earth, they do not worship the beast. Now you say, well, how do I know if I'm part of the elect? Well, there's two answers to that question. The first one is, at a very basic level, if you worship the beast, you're not part of the elect. If you worship the beast, you're not part of the elect. Well, say, well, I don't think I'm worshiping the beast. Well, let me put it another way. If you're not worshiping God, you're not part of the elect. If you're not worshiping God, you're not part of the elect. Well, some of you might say, well, what can I do about that? Here's what you can do about that. Repent and believe in Jesus. And you will be part of God's elect. Those whom God elects are those who repent and believe in Jesus. And if you repent and believe in Jesus, it proves that you are part of the elect. The beginning of the book of Revelation said so beautifully that anyone who would repent and trust in Christ would be freed from sin. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. In other words, in order for God to take sinners and change them into worshipers of him, He needed to resolve our sin problem. That's why God sent Jesus into the world. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He loved us by freeing us from our sin through his blood. That is what Jesus has done for anyone who would repent and trust in Christ. Well, friends, if you've never repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, I encourage you, do so today. Ask God to free you from your sin by the blood of Jesus. And in freeing us from our sin, Jesus makes us a kingdom. And this kingdom is a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They worship God. It's a kingdom of worshipers. So the only, the only categories of people here are people who worship the beast or worship God. 
People who serve the beast or serve God. The beast is worshipped by anyone else who does not worship God. The elect people of God show their election through this visible reality that they turn away from their sin and become worshippers of God. Friend, you may think that you're not worshipping the beast, but anyone who chooses to remain distant from God, anyone who refuses to worship God, is a worshipper of the beast, whether they realize it or not. This means that the entire population of the earth is divided only in these two camps. There's no neutral worshipper. There's no agnostic worshipper. There's no atheist worshipper. Some people refuse to believe that they are worshippers of the beast. But we will see indeed how every kind of idolatry, we will see how every kind of idolatry that we might engage into is the outworking of the false prophet who induces the world to, to, to fall in idolatry and worship the image of the beast. The world over which the beast is given authority makes it difficult for the people of God not to worship the beast. And refusing to worship the beast is challenging and may bring even persecution. And this is what verse 10 tells us. In verse 10, God allows some to be taken captive, some to be killed by the sword. But the suffering caused by our faith in Christ, the suffering caused by our refusal to worship, should not discourage us. We need endurance. We need faith to believe that the earthly sufferings and failures are not the end. We need faith to believe that. The world may not accept God's people because the world worships a beast. But we must be okay with feeling like we're losing in this world. This means that we as churches should not evaluate our success based on how much acceptance we receive from the world around us. Faithfulness to God will not always take us on the path of ease and material blessings. Refusing to worship the beast may take us on the path which the world calls losers. So we've seen here seven characteristics of the beast. The beast has a history in the biblical story. The beast acts on behalf of the dragon. The beast appears invincible and beyond comparison. The beast exalts itself above God. The beast is allowed to conquer God's people. The beast has a worldwide authority, but a limited time. The beast is worshipped by all, with one exception. So how should we respond? No wonder that the description of the first beast closes with a call for endurance and faith. We need faith to believe, not in the successful appearances of the beast, but to believe the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We need faith so that we are not lured by the amazement and dazzling the beast, nor follow the earth in worshiping the beast. The doctrine of election does not negate our need to endure to the end. Those who are truly saved endure to the end. Those who do not endure to the end show that they have not been truly saved. I love how Paul Hoskins puts this so well together. The persevering faith of the saints demonstrates that they are truly the people of God, purchased by the Lamb's blood. So ask yourself, are you focusing on persevering and having faith? Yes, it's the Lord who sustains us. But we know that the Lord's work in our hearts is genuine 
when it is evidenced by perseverance and faith. This is both a a word of warning, but also of assurance. It's a warning to anyone who assumes that they do not need to endure to the end, especially in the lure and intimidation of worshiping the beast. The elect are those who do not worship the beast. But this is also an assurance. Despite all the authority and the power and the threat of the beast, God's elect will not worship the beast. May God help us be among them. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would empower your people to remain faithful to you. No matter what the difficulties, no matter what the challenges, no matter what the the trials and the tribulations that we may face on account of Christ. Father, give us the courage, give us the strength to refuse the attempts and the lures of worshiping the beast, of joining the, the, the dwellers of the earth in being amazed at the beast. Father, whatever manifestations that looks like, give us the discernment, give us eyes to see, that to speak haughty words, to speak as if we are in control, to speak as if we don't need you, to speak as if we can live life without you. Father, give us eyes to see that all of that comes from the spirit of the beast. Father, protect us. Enable us to endure. We pray that you would hold us fast. Father, we pray that as we will testify to the public testimony of our sister Taylor McEwen in baptism, that you would enable her to endure to the end. We pray that you would work in us that which you have begun, and we know that what you have begun in us, you will complete. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.